and uh, grab a seat. Good morning. Uh, my name is, is Tim Spamberg. I have the pleasure of serving as the campus pastor here. And we're continuing um, in, a, in a sermon series on how to love your neighbor, what it means to love your neighbor, neighborly love. And one of the things that we've done as a church is shoot videos of various people in our church who are, are loving their neighbor through their work. And so um, last week we, we looked at a video of a couple guys from Olathe. This week, um, some of you might remember Emily Fraser from Olathe as well. Um, we shot a video to capture how she is loving her neighbor um, through her work. So why don't you take a look? Most of the day, um, I work around plants and trees. I work at a wholesale nursery um, out west of Olathe. And so I'm in charge of keeping track of all the health of the plants and make sure that they're sellable and uh, work in day out outside and and it's just a great time to um, be out in God's creation. My name is Emily Frazier and I've been going to Christ Community for three years. Even though sometimes we don't acknowledge that we work hard, we are a family. I work with some folks from Central America, so they're teaching me Spanish while I'm out there too, so it's kind of fun um, becoming bilingual and um, really becoming good friends with everyone there at work. Oftentimes we um, support each other. For example, I had a blood drive in honor of my sister in June, and I had a couple of my coworkers come to that, and I just felt, just felt really awesome about that and for a while there there'd be a couple weeks where I just wouldn't hear anything at all like I don't need a pat in the back every day but I kind of came to realize okay you're not trying to please them like you're, you need to be working for, for God. Since I get up early I get to um, miss most of the traffic and I also get to see the sunrise and it's just a good time to kind of collect my thoughts and um, pray and just get kind of ready for the day. So that's that's a boost anyway. You know, growing up, I've on the cattle ranch. It, to me, I've learned to be a better steward of the land and um, acknowledging that this was God built this. And I feel being out in the nursery with all the trees knowing that, hey, you know, God created this, and this is some, a gift that we can give to customers in Kansas City, Topeka, Lawrence, um, just able to share and keep that, um, God's beauty, spread it around. Well, as we, we continue this series, How to Love Your Neighbor, What It Means to Love Your Neighbor, let's pray and ask for God to speak this morning. God, we thank you that you um, loved us before we ever sought you or ever knew you or ever had any interest in you. That God, as Romans says, while we were still your enemy, Christ died for us. And so, God, you have loved us with a love that has made enemies your family. And so, God, we want to be people of that kind of love back to you, that we would love you faithfully, but also that we would love our neighbor faithfully. So God, would you help us this morning to know what it means to love our neighbor well through our work. God, we love you. We thank you for your son, Jesus. We pray all these things in his name. Amen. Well, who you work for can make or break your joy. At the moment I say boss, we all have stories, good and bad. You know, one of my, my past jobs, a co-worker of mine, 
um, had leukemia, and it was a, um, a service industry job, so we, were, we had lots of busy times, um, and so oftentimes, because of her regimen of drugs, she had to drink lots of fluids, which would mean she'd have to use the restroom during her clock, go off the, the floor maybe while we were, we were really busy, and obviously to us, we, we didn't care, right? I mean, it's, we feel like leukemia is a sufficient reason to go to the bathroom whenever, whenever you want, um, and yet my boss hated this. Right? Wanted efficiency, wanted the thought of someone using the restroom on the clock, just she couldn't deal with it. And so one day she pulled uh, my coworker, my friend, aside and said, you, you can no longer use the restroom on the clock. Which thankfully my coworker, you know, she was a strong woman, she didn't put up with it. She's like, no, I'm gonna, if I have to go to the restroom, I'm going to use the restroom. And we as her coworkers backed her up, right? I mean, she was fun to work with, an incredible woman. And, and at least for me, right, you, um, if you have leukemia, that just crosses the threshold of being able to use the restroom whenever you want, right? And so, so we, we just let her, and my boss, so she hated this. And so there was one day um, on the floor, loud enough for all of our customers and all my coworkers and me to hear, she announced to everyone who, who would listen, which was everyone in the store, that I am now taking my first bathroom break ever on the clock since I started here. And she walked off to the restroom. To her embarrassment, to, to my embarrassment, to my coworkers' embarrassment. I mean, working for someone like that, it was a drain. It made my, hard, it made my job difficult to, to go to work every day. Who you work for can, can make or break your joy at work. When I look back on all my jobs, whatever it is that I've done, whether I was washing golf carts at a golf course, whether I was bagging groceries, the grocery store making coffee at Starbucks, whatever my work has been, pastor, non-pastor, who I worked for, my boss, the one who oversaw me, either made my, my life, my, my work joyful or made it difficult and hard. That's why one of the most, at least to me, encouraging and yet simultaneously infuriating verses in all the Bible is Colossians 3, 23 and 24. Listen to these words. Whatever you do, work heartily. It's for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. This is an encouragement to me because it means I work for God ultimately, right? A God or a boss who would let people use the restroom if they had leukemia, right? I, mean, I have a good boss and yet it's infuriating at the same time because if I work for God, if you work for God, why is our work so difficult? If we work for God, why, why does our work at times feel meaningless? Like what we're doing isn't, isn't making any difference. It's, it's a waste of my time and the people I'm trying to serve. If God is, is my boss, if we work for God, then why does our work, whether paid or unpaid, so often turn out um, the way we feared it would turn out, the way we, it, it doesn't turn out the way we hope that it would turn out? These are the questions why we're, we're pressing into this series, Neighborly Love. The, one of the, the central ideas we're trying to, to push in to is that one of the primary ways you are going to love your neighbor is through your work. And then when I, I often think of, of what it means to love my neighbor, I think of private virtues, right? Being a nice person or giving a little bit of my money away to the poor. I think in, in, in primarily in those channels. And what we wanted to do is, is to pull that back and say, no, your work is probably the most effective and most important ways you're, you're going to love your neighbor, and even as we think about that as a church, as we all go out into the places where we work, our vocations, where we spend most of our lives, as we go out as a church together into the community, that's one of the primary ways we as a church are going to love or not love 
our neighbor. And so we all, as we all go out collectively, whether it's raising kids, running a business, sitting in a cubicle, we're all part of this vast community that God wants to see flourish. And your participation in that community through your work is one of the most significant ways, most important ways, the community around you will either flourish or fail. So what does it mean then for us that, that we work for God? I mean, Paul just sort of throws this out and then doesn't unpack it. And, and I, we're, even though we're starting in Colossians 3, we're going to spend most of our time this morning in Proverbs. That if Paul, when he says this in Colossians 3, would have assumed these Christians are becoming more and more familiar with their Old Testament. And the book of Proverbs is probably the best place in terms of practical living. Here's what it means to practically daily live out a life working for God. And in particular, Proverbs is constantly pushing back on the way you and I define our world. The way we define our work, the way we define the way we approach our lives. On what we think is the status quo, on what we think will satisfy us, and what we think is success. And if we're going to be people who actually are working for God, he's going to have to redefine life for us. Redefine a different status quo, redefine a new satisfaction, redefine a different view of success. So let's push in. In light of Colossians 3, let's dive into Proverbs under those three headings. God's going to have to redefine our status quo, our satisfaction, our success. So first, the status quo. This is, this is probably not a surprise, but if, when you read the Bible, it's very clear. God, at least if, if God wrote the Bible, that there's very different assumptions in this book about how the world should run than how the assumptions you and I in this world function on. If, for example, that Many of you maybe are follow the NFL or were aware of last year um, in the AFC Championship game, the, the New England Patriots were caught illegally deflating footballs to gain an advantage over the, the Indianapolis Colts. Now maybe I'm from Indianapolis, so I'm a big Colts fan, so maybe this is just free therapy. I need to get out um, of, from that moment. Um, but, but the reality is that they cheated to gain an advantage over, their, um, over the, the Colts. And, and so what's bothered me even more than that is the reaction people have had to that. Which is, well, the Patriots just do what everyone does. Everyone just does whatever they can to get ahead, to win, to, 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 to be successful. Right? If it's deflate, deflating football isn't a big deal. Everyone does it. And of course it's right. Deflating football isn't that big of a deal. Although maybe as a Colts fan I have something to work out there in my own heart and life. But, but imagine if you, you take that premise, right? Do whatever you can to win. Even if it's dishonest or not exactly in the rules. Just do whatever you can to win. Imagine we take that premise and build economies on it, businesses, school systems, families, political parties, on, on that assumption, do whatever you have to do to win. What happens when you build a society on that? Let me give you one example here that's becoming more prevalent in Kansas City, payday lending. At the premise of, of payday lending is that you give a two-week loan to someone for their paycheck, maybe $300, and then two weeks later they, they pay it back with astronomical interest rates and, and many hidden fees. So the average $300 loan is going to take $3,000 to pay back. And often, in, where payday institutions are, there are no banks. So they're poor or they're minority communities where banks and capital or access to capital is very hard to find. So payday lending institutions come in and offer capital for ridiculous interest rates. And so the reality is payday lending, it's, it's making a lot of money. It's a, it's a huge industry with lots of profit. And it's also destroying communities and people in poverty. 
there are more payday lending institutions in Kansas City than McDonald's, Wendy's, and Starbucks combined. All of these little businesses which are, are destroying the lives of the poor in the communities in which they live. And if we work for God, the reality is our, our first question is not just do we win and how do we win. Right? We don't just think, how do, I, how do I get ahead or how do I have success? We're also going to start to asking, is what I'm doing with my work, is it actually enhancing the life of my neighbor? Right? We push back against the status quo of do whatever you can to win and be successful. And so Proverbs is, is it's helpful here to give us some direction about how to think about the status quo in which you and I live. A status quo that says do whatever you can to win. Proverbs 11 has something Different to say, listen to the words of scripture. A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. The integrity of the upright guides them, but the crooked of the treacherous destroys them. Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. If you spend much time reading the Old Testament and how it talks about work and, and your job life, it's going to often talk about scales or weights. That in that day in the economy, um, if you're making an exchange with food or with metal, honest scales were vital so that you made a fair exchange, right? You say, I'm giving you 10 pounds of this, you're giving me 10 pounds of that, right? It's, it has to be fair. The scales have to be fair. But the reality was, um, unsurprisingly, um, once people found a way to game those scales and, and make the scales dishonest to get an advantage for themselves, they would do that. And they would alter the scale or the weight so that if you were getting 10 pounds, you were actually giving 11 pounds. They were, they were gaining an advantage over you through dishonesty. And while we don't, we don't use scales like they would use in that day, the reality is that there's a warning here that we have to hear, which is that if you destroy your neighbor through dishonest or deceitful or, or unfair means, you'll pay for it. If you win at all costs, in the end you're going to lose. Maybe you hear that and you say, but, but wait. I know lots of people who are, are wealthy, who are rich, who are stepping on the, the, the necks of the poor, and, and nothing's happening. And right, I mean, as a Colts fan, the Patriots won the Super Bowl. Right? Or, or paying lending institutions, they're making lots of money. And, and what's important for us to do is, is to take a step back. The book of Proverbs, it's not ironclad promises. Right? So in Proverbs 11, when it says that, that the crookedness of the treacherous destroys them, it's not saying that is always going to happen exactly that way. It's, it's, it's a warning. It's saying this is how life normally works out. If you're treacherous, if you're crooked, you will be destroyed. The Proverbs, it's sort of like the beware of dog sign. right? On the face. I mean, some people just put the sign up. There's no dog there. But... but just because there's no dog there, just because you jump the fence and everything's okay, doesn't mean everything's okay. Right? Maybe the dog isn't coming for you because he ate the last guy that jumped over the fence. He's just regaining his appetite to come and get you later. Right? You could jump the fence, jump the warning, and nothing happened. But wait, it's probably coming. And so that's how Proverbs functions. It's, life normally works out like this. If you... If you step on the backs of those and oppress them, you'll pay for it. And you may get away with it for a while, but you won't get away with it forever. The Proverbs 11, it's saying if you win at all costs, you will lose in the end. That the wicked are those who, who disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. 
And we as Christians, we have a different status quo. Proverbs 11 is saying we flip that value on its head. We will not disadvantage the community to advantage ourselves. We will disadvantage ourselves to advantage the community. Right? We are willing to lose or we are willing to give so the community benefits. Right? As opposed to being people who deceitfully um, cheat others to gain more, we're willing to generously give away to have less. And in, in particular, Proverbs 11 has two words that, that should guide us as we think about what it means to work for God. The first, we, we're to have integrity, which just in terms of the integrity, think the straight path, straight, straight line. We don't veer off. There are lines we will not cross. When I hiked the Grand Canyon, there are there moments of the canyon where you, like, you had to walk on the path. If you walked off the path, it wasn't like an interesting tree or field over there. Like you dropped hundreds of feet and you died. Right? It was, you stay on that path. And that's what integrity is. It's, there's boundaries you won't cross. There's things you will not do. You will stay on that path, even if it leads you into loss or failure or disappointment. As Christians, we have integrity. But secondly, there's humility. Right? We, don't, we would never put ourselves in a position where we, others would, would be be lowered or oppressed or, or, or less because of us, right? We will make ourselves less to lift, up, lift others up, but we will not step on others to be more. We will disadvantage ourselves to advantage others. We have integrity, humility. So students, think of it this way. A couple things you can do to disadvantage yourself for the students around you. Right? If someone's struggling with a problem in math, right? That annoying kid who keeps asking the same question over and over, instead of making fun of them, help them. Right? Disadvantage yourself to advantage them. Or if there's a student who's new, has no friends, is sitting by themselves, disadvantage you and your popularity to give them community and friendships. To advantage them, disadvantage yourself. Or adults. Let me ask, what, what boundaries do you have? Or do you have any boundaries? Is there anything you won't do? And how do you decide what those things are? If we work for God, it means this, this book, this word from him, guides our path, and we don't veer from it. Right? It's a different status quo. We're not willing. Our boundary is not do whatever we can to win. We have new status quo. And so don't live in a, in a life that says get yours. It's not the God whom you work for. You work for a very different God who redefines what our status quo is. So he redefines our status quo. Second, he redefines satisfaction. You and I, we live in, a, in an immediate gratification world. Louis C.K. is a comedian. He pointed out that you and I, we, we, have, we can surf the internet, internet on an airplane. I mean, have you ever thought about that? You can surf the internet while thousands of feet in the air going hundreds of miles an hour. But if the internet goes out and stops working, we get angry, right? Like, why? What's wrong? Like, what's, what's the, wrong? I mean, the reality is it's, you're on the internet. Like, you're in space, surfing stuff in space. It's incredible. And yet, the moment it goes out, we're angry. Or, or think of this. If, if I was to ask this room, hey, who was the, the Royals' backup catcher in 1985? No one of, not one of us would say, I don't know. We'd pull out our phones, we'd Google it, and we'd find it, right? Those of you who don't already, there's one person who, like, leaned over and was like, I know. And they, they told their spouse. It was like, you guys are ridiculous. But... You Google it, right? We, we don't ever have to say, I don't know anymore. We know instantly with our phone, with, our, with Googling, with search, with Wikipedia. It's, it's, it's an amazing thing, but it, it creates a little bit of a tension because if, if you and I can be gratified instantly with anything, what happens when we begin to build businesses and school systems and families and political parties? 
on the thought that you, you have to be gratified now, right now. Oh, let me give you an example. There's a book coming out um, in the, the next few weeks, or just came out, called The Gift, which details um, Mark Zuckerberg, who's the, the CEO of Facebook. He gave a $100 million gift to, to the Newark um, Public Schools. $100 million, and then uh, it, it was matched. So a total of $200 million flew into, or flowed into the, the New York Public Schools. And well, obviously, that sort of generosity should be praised, and it's an incredible act of, of generosity. One of the stipulations for Zuckerberg was that he wanted to see results in five years. And to overhaul a massively failing public school institution in five years. And so the superintendent that he picked to lead it said, no, I'm not going to do that. Like, you can't overhaul a school system in five years. That's not possible. And yet, that's how you and I work, right? We want to be wowed. We want instant change, right? Whether we think about it with our own kids or with our family or in our own workplaces, like, we want to overhaul. We want everything just to work beautifully in just a few hours if if God could do it. And yet, Proverbs has a very different outlook on on life. Listen to Proverbs 21.5. This is the plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance. But everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. The hastiness leads to ruin. Instant gratification ruins. And this ruin is completely counter to, to the way that you and I think about what matters. That we want, we want great change, we want accomplishment, and we want it, want it now. So we have a saying around Christ's community that we, we have a tendency to, to overestimate what we can do in one year, but underestimate what we can do in ten I look at the next year, I'm like, I want to do all these huge things, but I forget, no, this is, this is a long project. And think about that. When you think about your, your workplace or your families, your neighborhoods, your work, your vocation, obviously, if, if you're actually showing up and present there, there are things you want to change, right? And as you pray for that, as you think about that, do you think change in, in 10 minutes or 10 years? Because it's going to change how you work, how you approach your coworkers, your neighbors, those whom you serve. Because listen, what Proverbs is, and what I think the story of the New York Public, Newark Public Schools is, is saying is that this is a warning against hastiness. You can give a lot of money to a problem. It's not going to fix it because what, what really changes communities and neighborhoods and workplaces is diligence, is patience, is the daily life of work. And so as the New York Times was reviewing um, the gift, one of the, the things that, that the reviewer pointed out, that one of the biggest failures of this process through this gift was that they'd never consulted teachers or, or parents involved in the school system, right? It was like, we'll just throw all this money and it'll solve all the, the problems. And so parents and teachers weren't asked anything. That the thinking was, if you, you just solve, if you just throw a lot of money, everything will be fixed like that, which is not how the world works. The world needs diligence, no haste. So there's an application from this story and, and from Proverbs 21.5 I don't want us to miss. Which is in particular, those of you who are teachers, whether it's, it's your, your homeschool or whether you're a teacher in a public school, private school. If your primary role in life is to teach or you're a parent who volunteers in the local schools, then the work that you do is more important than a $100 million gift. Someone can pour $100 million into your school, into your family, into, and it will not make the difference as the daily, diligent, important work that teachers give day in and day out. And translate that to whatever your work is if you're not a teacher or a parent who volunteers in the schools. Right? You're not going to just wake up one day to, to a, a rich, satisfied life. 
It's going to come from the daily interactions, from the daily faithfulness, daily leading wherever it is that God asks you to go. Right? It's in the faithful changing of diapers, filling out of reports, studying for tests, the faithfulness of listening to a coworker. It's all of those acts added up which leads to a faithful, satisfied life, not by striking it rich in a moment. We want to be the person making the $100 million gift. And believe me, I hope some of us in here get to do a $100 million gift. And I'd love for you to consider Christ's community. But, but the reality is, most of us are going to make our impact in our neighborhoods through the faithful, daily, diligent work. And actually, there's more fruits and satisfaction to be found there than in the person who can write the big check. There's a, f- a fabled story from the early days of NASA where President Kennedy was, Kennedy was walking the halls. He came upon a janitor and asked the janitor, what, what do you do? And the janitor responded, well, Mr. President, I'm helping put a man on the moon. And it would have been easy for him, to, as he's cleaning toilets or taking out the trash, to say, my work is meaningless and has no significance. And yet it did. And whether the story happened or not, it speaks to what Proverbs is hitting at, which is this diligent life, these faithfully laid out plans that you you go after for a lifetime as opposed to seeking instant change. Because listen, our work can feel meaningless. Whether it's sitting in a cubicle or whether it's cleaning after others. Whatever you do, at some point it's going to feel like it's not making a difference, like it doesn't really matter, like you could stop what you're doing And it would make no difference to the world around you. Unless you understand that you work for God. And your boss is someone who actually runs the entire universe. And he isn't just going to get a man on the moon. He's actually going to redeem and recreate and remake all of this creation. And your little piece of that table or your little piece of that work, whether it's in a cubicle or whether it's changing a diaper, it has a significance beyond that moment and a life of faithful diligence to those daily interactions in life is what leads to a satisfied, fruitful life, not by doing something incredible and changing everything in a moment. That doesn't happen. You you may not get done, you may not get much done in in the next year, but imagine what you could do in 10. Diligence, faithfulness, patience. That's the life Proverbs calls you to. That's the God whom you work for. That's the life he calls you to. But it means redefining what you, you see as, what, what's, what will satisfy you. It means redefining your status quo. And lastly, it means redefining what we see as success. Because if we work for God, if God is our boss, then ultimately our boss expects something from us, rightfully so, right? I mean, you're not just getting a paycheck or you're not just in your work um, just to be there. There's certain expectations, things you have to do. And my, my guess is most of us define success more by what we accumulate or what we accomplish than by what we give away. Right? Success is defined by what I have. It's, it's accomplishing what I want. It's my house. It's my cars. It's how my kids turn out, how they're better than your kids. Right? It's my net worth. That is how we define success. And I would, I would advocate that Proverbs would flip that definition of success on its head. That you and I, if you are in Christ, you do not define success by what you have, but by what you spend. Not by what you accumulate, but by what you give away. And imagine businesses, church, a home, a family, a community, a neighborhood defined in that way. I define my success not by what I have, but by what I give away. And so to get into the the business world, for those of you, either you own a small business or 
right? Your, your job is to make sure that the company's making money, like, right? I mean, I, I'm not advocating, hey, go lose a bunch of money. That'd be a great idea. No, but it, but it does mean we, we sort of broaden out the way we define our success, the way that we define success, whether it's in your personal home or it's in your business, your work life. And some businesses that, that have nothing to do with Christianity, aren't Christians, are beginning to even see the importance of this. And so a phrase that's become popular now is, is uh, instead of having, um, seeing profits as your only bottom line, seeing a threefold bottom line. And I, I just want, want to take that and run with it as we think about our own personal lives as well as our, our work lives, to have a, a threefold bottom line. The first, of that, the first piece of that being profits. And I would just say profits still matter. And I sound like the man here, I know that, I realize that, but the reality is, if your business doesn't make money, or if you're, you're, you as a family, you're not taking in more money than you're, you're spending, then you're actually, you're, you're harming the neighborhood, the community, right? If, if your business doesn't make money, it means you're not providing a product anyone wants, right? You're doing work no one's interested in, or if, if you're not making money, it means you can't hire people, you're, you can't add jobs to the community, or if, if you're not making money and you're a publicly traded business, does that mean the people who are, are living or whose pensions are built on you making money for your company, right, their, their income goes down. It's important for us to, to still have profits. And like I said, it's not just a business thing. It's a personal income thing. We should all be living on less than what we take in to have family or personal profits so that we can give away out of the excess to our neighbor, to the vulnerable, to God's church, right, so that we can, can live a life of generosity, and so bringing in uh, income is not a bad thing. When it becomes bad is when we begin to use it as, as the only thing by which we matter, measure success or we're taking in more than we're giving out. So that's profits to people. Right? We should, when we think about success, we should think not just about profits but about people. Now listen to Proverbs 14.31. Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. He who is generous to the vulnerable, to the needy, honors him. And we, in all of our work, right, whether the, the vulnerable, the needy, is a baby who will die if you don't keep doing what you're doing, right, or it's, it's, it's those in the community, or it's a coworker that, that's having a, a rough time of it at, at work, right, we see our work as ways to lift up our neighbor who is in need. Whatever that need is defined as, or whatever that need is, and so do you see a part of your work, a part of your loving your neighbor as helping your neighbor flourish? Right? Do you celebrate it when a coworker gets a, a raise and a promotion? As students, do you celebrate it when it's a teammate that scores the goal instead of you, or a classmate who aces a test, gets a better grade than you even though you helped them get that grade? That if success is what we give away, not what we take in, then we'll see that a key part of our work for God is helping other people flourish. So success, it's, it's about giving ourselves away for, um, to have excess income to give away. It's to, uh, to, to be good for the flourishing of our communities, for people. And then thirdly, um, third piece of the, the bottom line, planet. Right? The, the, we care about sustainability and leaving an economy, a community, a world that's, that's better for our kids than what we have ourselves. Now remember Revelation 21 and 22. If you've been here along at Christ Community, we like to push this again and again. That at the end of, of all time, Revelation 21 and 22, God does not come in and say, you guys, I'm burning this whole thing up. We're starting over. That's not what, what's said there. It's instead the new Jerusalem is breaking in to earth and everything is made new, right? God from his throne says, I will make all things new. Not I will make all new things. 
Which means all of the work you and I do, the, the things that we contribute, the ways we want to make our neighborhood, our schools, our communities, our kids, our families better, that work to some extent lasts into the new creation. And so as we think about what success is, right, we think about our planet, about a long-term sustainability and viability that, that our kids have a better world um, than what we had when we inherited it. And so God redefines success, right? I mean, that, that's who God is, right? He's a God who gives himself away for you, for me. But success, it's not your death, it's not your net worth, it's not your accomplishments, it's not how well your kids turn out. Success is not what you do in this life, it's what you give away. Because imagine if, if God defined success by what he accumulated. And so in coming to us and saying, listen, you want to be my people, all right, what can you give me? What can you do for me? What can you accomplish for me? Imagine if God had done that to us, but he didn't, right? Because if he had, we'd have no chance. Because what in the world could you and I offer to a God who has every piece of creation at his disposal? He's made it all. He's made you. He's made me. And yet, most of us, we're relating to God like that right now, aren't we? Either by performance or by results. Right? We, we come before God and we think, God, if I do enough, you'll welcome me, you'll like me, you'll, you'll bring me in. Or we, we, we think that God will only accept us if we, if we do certain results, right? So if you get the promotion or if your kids turn out the way that you want them, right? If you, if you do these things or if you accomplish these things, you're good before God. But that is not what Colossians 3 says. And so in a way, let me undo my entire sermon at the, the conclusion. That you work for God, but God is not your boss, God does not come to any one of us and say, and say to us, listen, I've, I have work for you I want to do, and I'm going to be your boss. That is not what Colossians 3 says. Did you catch that? Paul is he's being subtle but important. We cannot miss this. Verse 23, whatever you do in your work, work heartily. It's for the Lord and not for men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. Do you know who gets inheritances? Not employees. My guess is not one of your bosses said, hey, I'd like to write you into my will. No one. No boss does that. That's why God is, is saying to here, I don't, I don't have a paycheck for you. I don't, I'm not coming to you saying, if you do this for me, I'll do this for you. What he's saying is, come and be my son. Come and be my daughter. I have an inheritance for you. And that is the most freeing way that we could live or enter into our work. Because what that means is you can fail in your performance, and you will. Right? The whole point of the gospel is you did fail at your performance. You did not live up to what you were supposed to do. And that's why Jesus came and entered in and said, Come to me, all who, are, who labor are, are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Come, be a son, be a daughter. Your performance does not live up. And the results that you produce, that will not get you into the kingdom either. And what that means, if that's true, right? if that's true, then you can produce the best results and it, it will not make a difference before God. He owned it all anyway. Or you can fail miserably and it, that is irrelevant. Because our tendency, right, if you produce the results, you're going to become arrogant and prideful. You're going to look down on those who didn't get the promotion, who didn't produce the results. Or if you don't produce the results, you don't have the performance, you're going to live in guilt and shame and disappointment. And, that, and what Paul is saying here is that's not how you work for God at all. You are invited in as a son and as a daughter. So as you go into work this week, that's how you go to work. And I would just say, if if you're not a Christian, is there a more freeing way to live? Where you, you both have the drive to go and work hard and give to your neighborhood, your community. But you also can give knowing the whole thing doesn't ride on your ability 
God's coming. Jesus is coming. He's going to make all things new. And more than that, your performance, your acceptance before God is not riding on your work week this week. That was one for you at Calvary 2,000 years ago on a cross by Christ. And no matter how big of a mess you think your life or your work can become, I guarantee you it's not as bad as a cross. Where Jesus was, was broken, where he was beaten, stripped naked, made to shame in front of everyone who knew him. And yet even if your life is as bad as a cross, God knows what to do with crosses. He makes life out of them. That you are invited into this place to work for God as a son, as a daughter. So may we work hard this week, knowing our inheritance is sure. Let's pray. God, I I say all of that, and even just got my my own heart, it's hard to believe that today I could fail as a father or preach a terrible sermon or no one show up, and, and God, my stance before you is no different than if I hit a home run and did everything right and lived my life the way you called me to. God, it's, it's just hard for me to believe that. And so I'm sure many of, of us in this room, but God, me especially, I need you to come and overwork my heart, convince me more so of the gospel, that it's true and that is the thing that I live for and that I do not work for you to earn my acceptance or to earn my place at your table But God, I'm invited as a son, as your son. That we are all invited as your sons, as your daughters. Not as servants, not as your employees. God, as your son and as your daughter. And I pray, I pray we would come. God, if we don't come, would you come for us? Invade our hearts with your gospel now. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.